Hi everybody, I'm Mike Mirando, your host today for our monthly sports feature of the Rancho Cordova podcast, of course, sponsored by the California Capitol Film Office. And our guest today is somebody very, very special, somebody who I've known of uh, even before high school. Her name was synonymous with many things in, in athletics. She's actually had three different careers, and I don't know how she did that, but we're going to find out today. Uh, she grew up here, went to local schools, of course, uh, was a sports star long before Title IX, so she is definitely a pioneer when it comes to women's sports. Uh, she later worked in the mental health field, and we're going to be talking about that. Now, this lady's athletic achievements would take up the entire hour, but I'm just going to highlight just a few of them. Track and field star in the long jump and 400 hurdles, which took her to the Junior Olympics not once, but twice. Cordova High School's Female Athlete of the Year in 1973. She starred for the Dusters, Rancho Cordova's women's uh, track club. And she later starred for CSU Hayward, now CSU East Bay, dominating the 400-meter hurdles and long jump, where she was a two-time All-American. 1978's Golden State Conference Female Track Athlete of the Year. And in 1996, she was an inductee uh, into the Alameda County Women's Hall of Fame and the Cal State East Bay Sports Hall of Fame and an original Rancho Cordova Sports Hall of Fame inductee back in 2015. She has studied both cultural anthropology and social transformation. It's an honor for me personally to welcome to the show Colette Winlock. Colette, how are you? Mike, I'm doing good, and, and it's good to see you on the other side, and I guess we grew up. Uh, no kidding. I mean, where have the last 50 years gone? And as you know, we're having a, a, a Cordova High School class of 73, 50-year reunion coming up this coming June, but 50 years seems to have gone by in an eyelash. I know, I know. It's been fun. You also, of course, have a book, Undoing Crazy. It's a fascinating read. I happen to have a copy right here, and I had mentioned to Colette early on, I bought this book several years ago, uh, read it a couple of different times, of course. But first of all, Colette, you're a sacrament, and we'll get into the book and some of your athletic achievements uh, during the next uh, now 58 minutes. Uh, you're a Sacramento native. You grew up in Rancho Cordova. You have quite a family story to tell. Of course, we know about Steve, your dad, but you have got others. Tell us about your upbringing, in particular, your fabulous parents. I kind of want to start there today. Sure. Well, you know, um, we're, we were a family that was connected to the military. You know, my dad, he was a mechanic on the uh, B-52, so he went all over the world. And, and so once, he, once we settled in Rancho Cordova, um, it began to be something that between, you know, going to White Rock Elementary School, going to Mills Junior High, uh, graduate, graduating at, um, you know, uh, Cordova High School, you know, sports were always something that was big in Ranch Cordova. And so my, my older brother, Sam, Samuel uh, Carruth, he played football for, uh, for, for Cordova High. Um, I think Steve even had a stint where he tried out for the track team at one time, but I think he, he was more of a kind of a political intellectual kind of guy. And so that took him, as you know, into the course of, um, of working in education. Um, our sister, Lori, 
Lori Winlock, she played on the um, the volleyball team and she was an outstanding star. And, and then I'm not sure if you know my youngest sister, Lisa Winlock. She was, um, you know, big on the cheer team, big within, you know, modeling and all kinds of activities. So we were a very involved family. Um, and I'm grateful for that, you know, gave us something to do. I think it supported us in developing our character, you know, uh, learning how to start something and finish it. Well, starting and finishing something is something that, uh, you know, obviously you, you excel at. And now your parents, uh, I know Loretta, your mom, uh, certainly had a lot, of, a lot of accomplishments. Tell us about your mom and dad, how they, how they encouraged you, not just you, maybe your entire family, but for all of your siblings, including yourself, to excel at various fields is really quite something. Your mom and dad had to have played a role. Well, I think, well, I know my mom and dad, they were very invested in education. Um, you know, as a military family, at one time we lived in Charleston, South Carolina. And when we were there, it was during the time of segregated schools. And so I remember how they took us out of the public school and put us into a Catholic school because they wanted to make sure that our education, you know, was something that was always on the forefront. I think, I think my dad and my mom, they always told us, you know, you can do anything that you want to do. Um, my mom used to say, well, don't forget, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get, you know, half the credit. I know when we came from Charleston and we moved back to Sacramento, they purposely moved us into Rancho Cordova because of the school system. And that was something that was always important to them. Now, my mom, you know, being a woman of her generation, you know, I think she completed the eighth grade. And so for her, it was always important that we put school for uh, put school first. Well, of course, I, I remember your mom as the campus supervisor uh, when we were in high school. And let me just tell you, folks, you did not want to mess with Mrs. Winlock. I mean, there were many teachable moments that your mom imparted upon us students, uh, but we, uh, we, we ended up being better people for it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they name a day after her, uh, uh, Loretta Winlock Day, uh, toward the end of her tenure? You know, they did. They did. We have a, a wonderful picture of her standing in front of her sign in front of the administration building where it was declared, you know, Loretta Winlock uh, Day. And, um, you know, my mom overlapped me in my senior year in terms of being the campus supervisor. So, you know, I had no room to make any mistakes. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, none of us did. And this kind of spurred a little bit of a memory uh, during our senior year. Some of us were creating a little bit of a ruckus in the lunchroom. And let's face it, when you're in high school, you're kind of given to pratfalls. And so some of us took our the remnants of the rest of our lunch, opened up the tables. If you remember, we had tables that we could push together. Well, we opened it up and, and shoosted our trash onto the floor. Well, your mom saw that. And she saw me do it. And she came over and said, did you do that? And I'm looking up at her. And of course, you think I'm going to lie to her? Uh, I said, yes, I did. And she said, well, you know what to do. I, I, I just remembered that a few minutes ago. And I went down on my hands and knees. And well, it wasn't just my trash I picked up. A few of my other buddies also contributed. 
but that's the kind of person your mom was. Uh, you know, she wasn't overbearing, but at the same time, uh, if she came eyeball to eyeball with you, uh, you better choose the right way to, to, to answer. So that was... Yeah, I mean, she was very, she as well as my dad were very consistent about, you know, you always do the right thing. Absolutely. And your mom was also president of the Cordovan Socialites, uh, an African-American women's civic group, which for back then was extraordinary because there probably weren't that many clubs uh, in the early 1970s. Well, I think you're right about that. I think I'm pretty sure they were the only um, African-American women's civic group. And, and, you know, there were so many um, wonderful families that lived in Rancho at that time. And so I can think about all the different mothers that were part of that group that, you know, focused on education. They did fundraisers for scholarship. They made sure that there were activities that, you know, African-American families could go to where they would be held in very high esteem. So, yeah, it was a pretty wonderful thing that they did. And for listeners and obviously our YouTube audience uh, uh, to take a look at this, uh, of course, February being Black History Month, a lot of that history started in Rancho Cordova from a greater Sacramento standpoint. And clubs like this and clubs that, uh, for example, that uh, Loretta Winlock participated in and to a great degree what you did, uh, participated in as well, Colette, really laid the groundwork uh, many, many years ahead of your time and also well ahead of Title IX, which had not been in, uh, uh, in a, enacted yet. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, women's groups, uh, particularly black women's group, they were something that was across the country and, you know, creating this network of black women that were coming together for the uplift of the community, the uplift of their children, their families. So it's it was something that even though um, the socialites were the only one in Ranch Cordova, it definitely was something that was happening across the country. Sure. And uh, folks, there was no social media back then. It's not like we could get on our, our phones and start connecting people by Facebook and other social mediums. Uh, Colette's mom, I would imagine, spent a lot of time on the phone bringing people together uh, from not just the Sacramento area, but throughout the nation as well. Yeah, yeah. No, most definitely. And, and you know, she definitely had support, like I said, from the other mothers of uh, those of us that went to, you know, schools in, in Rancho Cordova. So it was quite a network that I think that really helped, you know, keep the, the community, particularly the Black community, connected to each other. Sure, sure. Folks, what, what great role models to have parents like this. Uh, even today, if you're looking for a blueprint, you look no further than the Winlocks, and I mean that in all sincerity. Colette, let's let's get into your your athletic career. Uh, I, I obviously knew a lot about it at the time, uh, you being a 2015 Rancho Cordova Sports Hall of Famer. But I'm I was looking back through my notes and I saw something interesting. I'm told that your long jump technique in high school was so unique that Will Stevens of the Will's Spikettes actually filmed it and referenced it in his book on coaching female athletes. Uh, you know, he did, he did. You know, at that time, you know, mostly everybody, when they were doing the long jump, it was pretty straightforward on, you know, you take off and you land. And so actually, um, Mr. Stevens had taught me how to do the hitch kick. 
And so that's kind of like taking a big, long, huge step, you know, after you take off. And, and you know, I was pretty flexible. I was strong as a young woman. And so uh, I had, I was able to do it fairly successfully. And, you know, it helped me get to 19 feet in jumping, you know, in, in my long jump. And so he was at that time putting out, I think one of the, I don't know if the first, but, you know, there was very few books that were coming out on on women uh, participating in track and field. And so I've got that book to this day. It's got all kind of, you know, great little pictures and whatnot. And and it's definitely, it's it's a good memory that I have of, of you know, being acknowledged for the, the uh, you know, the training and all the practice that I did. Sure, sure. Colette Winlock is our guest. She's broadcasting uh, from Siskiyou County. And we'll kind of get into that, uh, why she's kind of out in the hinterlands. But let's go back to the Hitchcock a minute, because that's not something that was easy to learn. In fact, I, I don't think many people even knew what it was. How easy was it for you or how tough was it for you to to uh, to perfect it? Well, I have to be honest, you know, I was I was a bit of a tomboy and I hung out with my older brothers. We climbed trees, we romped through the woods and those type of things. So so, you know, I was fairly flexible and I have to admit it wasn't that difficult for me to learn. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that I was able to, you know, to carry it out so easily. And I began to start using that, you know, in all the various meets. And and I had forgotten about going to the Junior Olympics. Thanks for bringing that back to me. I remember meeting um, at that time the world record holder, Bob Beeman. Yes. Him. And I remember doing my little hitch kick and I was doing pretty good. And he came over and, and you know, complimented me and, and even signed my track uh, shoes at the time. Is that right? Wow. Wow. What a, uh, what a, what a keepsake and a memory. Now, when you were at, at Cordova High School back in the early 70s, obviously it was a time of pre, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, pre-Title IX. <clears throat> at what point did you realize you wanted to run track? Wow. You know, I think I realized that about sixth grade for, um, I remember going to, they were, they were having kind of a local neighborhood age group track meet. And I remember going and participating and, you know, like even to this day, there's something, there's, there's just this natural kind of high when you're able to just, you know, you get in the blocks, you wait for the gun and like, boom, and you just take off. And, and I just found that I enjoyed, you know, being able to exert that level of physicality. And, um, and then, you know, I, I actually like to go to practice. You know, we, we practice, oh my God, 11 and a half months out of the year. Really? So track practice was always just a constant in my life. And I ran from the time I was about 12, I think I actually stopped maybe around about 37, 38. So I, it was it was a big part of my life. I, I remember you uh, back in our Mills Junior High School days in ninth grade uh, when you're and I can't remember who, who was your coach uh, in ninth grade. Um, you know, I had a few coaches like we had PE teachers. We had Mrs. Leesville. Um, but David Andriotti, I don't know if you recall yeah. that name. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. Now, Dave and Nancy Andriotti, they were the ones who started the Dusters Track Club. Right. And so through them is where I really began to start going down to the Bay Area to do, you know, age group tracks, you know, for for the AAU clubs at the time. And um, yeah, so I, I would really give that to David and Nancy Andriotti. And a lot of the track clubs, uh, yeah, it's kind of a blessing and a curse in a way. On the one hand, women didn't have as many opportunities as as, as the guys did. But on the other, you got specialized training running in those track clubs that a lot of other kids didn't. And obviously it it, it, uh, it showed with, uh, with your accomplishments as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I came through junior high and high school, we had what was called GAA, Girls Athletic right. Association. And there you would see, well, 300 girls after school competing and, you know, maybe it was track, it was basketball, you know, volleyball, something of that. And as much as I like that Title IX came about because it opened up doors, like you said, for so many elite athletes, what it did do, it kind of, well, not kind of, it took away GAA. So rather than having 300 girls participate in sports, we were now down to a small elite team of maybe 12 to 15. And so when I look at that, you know, I kind of wish that GAA would come back so that more girls could participate. And, you know, if, if you're not able to make the traveling team, at least you still, you know, could have the fun of practicing your sport. So who knows, maybe it'll come back. Well, uh, hope, hopefully so. Now, I've also got in my notes one of your other accomplishments. Uh, you hold the 1,600-meter uh, relay team. You're on that relay team that won the AAU Indoor Championships at Madison Square Garden. You were a member of the uh, Merquettes at the time. Is that correct? Wow, that's a memory. <laughs> well, I had a lot to work with. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Um, that was, I did participate on that team, um, and it's the Los Angeles Mercurettes. Yes. Um, had an opportunity to go to Madison Square Gardens, run the indoor, you know, 1600 relay, and and we, we won handedly, and that's always a good memory that I have because I don't know if you've ever been to an indoor track meet, but you know how the, the curves are banked? Well, they, they kind of go up, right? And it's a no-no to pass on the inside. But I'll tell you, Mike, I had so much speed going in me at that time, and I'm sure it was adrenaline because, you know, you're talking a packed, you know, house. And I just kind of turned sideways, and I passed on the inside and just took off. And I remember Coach, he was happy that we won, and he looks at me and he says, Winlock, don't do that again. It's like... <laughs> But, you know, I think that's a beauty of sport. Sometimes it's just the spontaneity of, of what you're going to do or what you're able to do. And so I always remember that race. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for digging that one up. I had forgotten about that. Well, there's, there's plenty of nuggets, that one in particular. But when you're talking about technique, and especially on a race like that, do you go you know, all out right from the jump, or do you pace yourself? Is there a is there a natural inclination to want to, you know, go quickly, or you know, how do you recall uh, doing it? Well, I'll tell you, Mike. When you run the four hundred, 
it's a 400 sprint. You know, it's a 400 sprint. And that's why you train so much so that when you get down to that one race, like I was used to running, you know, in practice, we might do 10 400s. And so then when I get to the meet, oh, I only got to do one. So, um, but no, it's, um, I think the key thing to 400, it is an all out sprint, but the key is, are you able to relax with that sprint? And that would be the key thing of being able to find that rhythm where you're relaxing, you know, with your stride, with your arms. And I don't know anybody who's run the 400 who doesn't talk about the monkey that hits you around about 330 yards or 330 meters. And that's, that makes a difference between are you going to win? Are you going to place? But your ability to re relax into that last 110 yards. Yeah, that that's the key an all out sprint and ability to relax when you're running larger races like the 1600 uh is there a different strategy or a different mindset going into a race like that well i don't want to get twisted mike i did not run the 1600 that's a oh, mile. okay you're you're <laughs> yeah. on the you're on the relay the team relay. right mm -hmm. okay well, switching gears a little bit, what uh, what's your favorite event? Would it have been the sprints or the long jump? Well, you know, it's interesting. At one point, I got injured, and not badly, but I got injured in my hamstring. I had strained it. And so I, I wasn't able to do the all-out 400. So that kind of shifted me over into doing the 400-meter hurdles. And that actually became my favorite event. It became the event that I, I made All-American in. Um, at one time, I had a pretty high ranking, a world ranking um, for my 400 meter time. Now, when I look at these young ladies now, because I don't know if you watch Sydney McLaughlin, mm -hmm. is running the four, oh my God. She is just the beast. Um, it's just amazing what she's doing because again, with the 400 meter hurdles, you're tr you have a little bit more pacing, but it still is pretty much a sprint that you're doing for 400 meters. And so my favorite event um, after the 400 meters, I'd have to say would be the 200 meters. Um, I just love leaning into that curve, you know, that you go around and it's like you just get sprung out when you get on the straightaway. Sure, sure. Well, you talk about athletes of today in Sydney. The whole mindset toward training is is obviously completely different. But some of those uh, strategies you employed and uh, Coach Andreotti impressed upon you at a young age, uh, you know, kind of take us through that. Well, I think the thing that coach, you know, definitely impressed upon me, and I'm sure these athletes today are doing the same, is you really never get out of shape. Because as you're, you know, it, even when you have maybe a couple off days, you go out, you run three, four miles, you know. Um, I think that that was very key. The other thing that I learned while I was at um, Cal State Hayward, we had coach uh, Malachi Andrews who was an Olympic long jumper. And so he was very big on making sure that we stayed loose, meaning that, um, you know, you make sure you stretch before you even get into your race or before you get into your, um, 
you know, even for practice. Because Coach um, Andrews, you know, he didn't even want to see you till after you ran a mile. Um, <laughs> you did all, you know, maybe about 20, 30 minutes of really intense stretching. And then you go and you do your wind sprints. Now, after you do that, then you go find out what your workout is. And so I'm pretty sure that athletes today and something that I remember that I had to do is that, you know, staying in shape was something that just became a way of life. And I'm actually grateful because it's something that's carried over as I've gotten older. Well, absolutely. And that's something that Rancho Cordova athletes are famous for because of the coaching and, and almost to a person that I've spoken with, it's the coaching really that uh, ingrained upon them uh, lifetime, uh, uh, lack of a better term, uh, not just achievements, but, uh, but techniques, if you will, and lifetime lessons that are applicable to their professional lives after high school and college. I want to ask you, Colette, what, uh, what made you decide Cal State Hayward, which is now Cal, Cal State East Bay, obviously? Well, you know, at the time, um, well, at the time, you know, I was competing with um, Diane Yost, who also made Hall of Fame, I think, a couple of years ago. Last year, she was uh, one of our inductees, yes. Right. And so Diane and I, I mean, we're competing with the Dusters Track Club. We're going down to meets that were actually held at Cal State Hayward. And and before I knew it, there was a coach. I remember her name was Dee Sharafa. She called and, and actually recruited and said, hey, you know, would you guys come to Cal State Hayward? And so Diane and I both moved down to uh, Hayward. And that's where we begin, you know, our track career there. Your relationship with Diane Yost Goldman, who obviously is a 2022 uh, Hall of Famer as well. You two dominated track. And when we picked up the conversation last, you chose Cal State uh, Hayward, uh, obviously their local school. But was it the track uh, program that also enticed you to go there? <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, you know, one thing about Diane, I think she had gone to community college and she was also transferring. I had just graduated from high school, so I was about two years uh, behind her. But um, Cal State Hayward had just an incredible program. I mean, um, Coach Santos was there. Um, you know, Don Chu, he was there. Uh, Marilyn King, I don't know if you know her, but she's a triple, you know, Olympian. And one of the things about Cal State Hayward that was exciting because it had a, it had this program where the men and the women, we trained together. You know, there was not this, you know, men at one, the, the women come on at three. No, we all showed up at practice together. We did our warm up together. Um, we did a, a number of our, um, you know, repeat sprints together. Um, and so it was just a program that had a lot of history and it had a lot of pride. Uh, we were the pioneers and, you know, people knew when we came. <laughs> ab, ab, ab. A absolutely. Uh, I want to switch into your second career, uh, and that is the one uh, that you've had in the mental health arena, mental and behavioral health. Uh, you know, what led you to uh, go into a career in mental health awareness? I know that is something near and dear to your heart, 
and not too many people know about this, but I kind of want to talk about that. Let's uh, let's go there for a few minutes. Well, I think for, you know, for me, um, I've always been that person that wanted to help. And I don't know if you recall, I, I um, you know, I think I, I was a student body vice president for, you know, Cordova for a couple of years. Um, I was, um, you know, an, an officer while I was at Mills Junior High. And so I've always had this sense that I, I like to participate in something that's going to make something better for folks. And so when I got out of, um, when I got out of Cal State Hayward, um, I actually tried to teach for a couple of years. But um, when I came out, that was during that time they were having all of the, um, you know, the hiring freezes and there was so much going on. And so I ended up working with uh, community services. And my first job was at Project Eden. And we were actually a crisis hotline. And so people would call in with, you know, emergencies. We'd jump in the car, we'd rush out. And we actually saved a number of lives of people who had overdosed that didn't want to, you know, call the police. Um, I worked with groups of teens, you know, teen alternative programs. Um, you know, teenagers have always fascinated me on what they can do and what they can accomplish. And so we were known for offering um, conferences once a year. Um, I mean, we did that for like 10, 20 years. But what I really loved about the conferences is that, you know, the, the kids were the keynote speakers. They were the workshop presenters. They literally ran the conference, you know, themselves. And so I had a lot of pride in, in supporting the young people to do that. And I think, you know, when I when you say, how did I get in, interested? You know, I've seen miracles. I've seen people change their lives. I've seen people who have been the lowest of low that given some support and, you know, everybody differs on what they need, but I have seen those young people be able to, you know, to change their lives. And so I've been mostly involved in the mental health field of uh, focused on prevention and early intervention. And, and those are the kinds of activities where you actually provide positive um, activities, you know, in the community. Even, I mean, people who recover from alcohol abuse, recover from substance abuse, they're still looking and needing and wanting a community to participate in. And so I always had a lot of pride on being able to create those kinds of activities where people themselves begin to start, you know, they would become the volunteers, they would come up with great ideas. My job was find the money so we could make sure that, you know, we could keep doing these things. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I've had a rich career, you know, in the mental health field. Um, I've also learned a lot about people who are experiencing depression, people who are experiencing trauma, um, you know, anxiety, you know, young people who have a sense of hopelessness that, you know, there's nobody's caring and being able to, to really, you know, put together, you know, not only just, you know, group programs, but individual programs. I had this one young kid one time, Mike, I love this story for myself, is that, you know, basically I could see we were going to lose him. Um, you know, he was coming into the center, but I could just tell by his body language and everything that we were going to lose him. So I offered him a job and I took a lot of heat for that because he had no qualifications, but I was trying to figure out how do we, you know, get him here. So he lasted for two weeks. And then he kind of disappeared, went back to some of his old behavior, but then he showed back up 
about two weeks later. And the first thing he said to me was, I'm fired, huh? And I said, yeah, you're fired. But you know what? He thanked me for believing in him and giving him a chance. And I'll tell you, I don't, this young man, he went on to get his GED. He signed up for the Conservation Corps, you know, which does a lot of job training and, and um, job skills. And, you know, no, his life's not perfect today, but it's very much different than where it was. And so, you know, I've had many experiences where I feel like just given the right amount of support, you know, help somebody to, to move forward in their life. Or the right person to be there at the right time. Now, when you got into mental and behavioral health awareness, that was at a time where there were plenty of stigmas on this type of, of uh, mental challenges. Uh, even, you know, back in the late 60s and 1970s, it was a huge stigma. It's not like today where there's a lot of programs that shine a spotlight on uh, mental health uh, awareness. But, you know, no, you're definitely right about that. And even, I mean, as stigma was across the board, then you get into African-American communities and it's even more, you know, stigma because, you know, we're supposed to be strong or particularly black women, you're supposed to be strong. Don't show your weakness, you know, that type of thing. But I think what, what I experience is, you know, it's like once you begin to start creating a community of people that are in recovery, it gets attractive. You know, people are like, so what are you guys doing? Why are you guys smiling? Where are you going to? You know, and so um, the thing about, I don't know if you know much about the 12-step community, but it's the power mm -hmm. of attraction, not necessarily promotion. And so I felt like I was part of creating, particularly in the Bay Area, in, in Oakland, where we were creating, you know, these these critical mass of people that had, you know, gotten into recovery and other folks are watching and they're like, oh, I want to be part of that. Well, it's, it's said that one in four American families have someone who either has an addictive behavior or a mental health challenge. And those those numbers seem to be going up over time. So uh, I think we can all relate and certainly applaud the work that that, that you do and continue to do. Uh, we're talking to Colette Winlock, Cordova High School class in 1973 and native of this area, who is really a fabulous uh, lady. And we're talking about her career number two in the mental health awareness field. And this is something that, that you've been involved in. Do you still publicly speak, Colette, on this issue? You know, um, not as much as I used to. I think I'm kind of in that semi-retirement phase. Well, you're also working on a sequel too, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, certainly accomplishments in this genre could take up the rest of the hour. I'll read just a few. She's worked in the area of prevention and early intervention programs. Uh, Project Eden, of course, the Pros for Kids, National Black Alco Alcoholism Council, the California chapter, the Bay Area Black United Fund, and the Black Women's Media Project, Health and Human Resource Education Center, and the list goes on from there. You obviously, Colette, are an acknowledged leader in the mental health, among mental health issues affecting black women, and I think that's kind of dovetailing into your book. The book is Undoing Crazy, and I want to ask you first, before we get into this, what led you to write the book? Well... 
I think when you've worked in, you know, the mental health field as long as I had, I had seen so many different things. Um, at that time, I was finishing up grad school. I was in a, um, a master's PhD program. And so I got to the part where it was time for me to, you know, pr uh, write my proposal for my um, dissertation. And I'll just be honest, um, the style of writing didn't speak to me. You know, the <laughs> academic writing didn't speak to me. It's, it's grant writing. It can be a little a little dry. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and at that time, I was like, okay, now why am I trying to get a PhD? And then I realized that, you know, after all these years, it, it wasn't as important to me as doing the next thing that was important. And that was to begin writing novels. Because um, I remember, I thought to myself, hmm, if not now, when? And so I just began, well, actually, I, I left working in nonprofits, and I went to go work for Trader Joe's. And oh. I worked at Trader Joe's for about three years. It was great. It was fantastic. I felt like I went to a workout every day. But um, it gave me the mind space to begin to start focusing on writing a novel. And I'm happy to say that I was able to complete it, you know, during that time. So, and it was a little bit of a brain break, you know. Um, and so it was just time for me to kind of bring forth some of the information that I felt. And see, in Undoing Crazy, I did have kind of this little thing in the back of my head. You know, I could see where symptoms of depression and oppression were very similar, the causes. I mean, when you're an individual and you're experiencing oppression, you're feeling discriminated against, you're feeling like you're not getting the opportunities that are being provided for others, how you internalize that can sometimes look like depression. And so I wanted to write something that would kind of allow people who had a hard time talking about depression or even just, you know, mental health issues in general, they could read something that might either they identify with or be something that they could have something to talk about, you know, to get at those particular issues. Well, that was my key takeaway your book. You took the words out of my mouth. It's really kind of an intersection of oppression and depression. And as you shared earlier, a lot of people view the black community as, as having that veneer of strength without realizing that they have mental issues just like everybody else. And so this book, to me, kind of brought both of them, uh, especially the oppression factor, into focus. Undoing Crazy, your debut novel, uh, is a work of psychological fiction that deals with the serious subject matter of mental health and behavioral health and depression. And, of course, the strains on, on families, uh, as your main character uh, is, is in as well. Relationships, uh, all of which are under uh, oppressive experiences. How long did it take you to write that book? Because it, 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 it took me about three weeks to read the first time. And i got to be honest with you, Colette, a little bit longer the second time because I kept going back to different things in this book. That, that piqued my interest. So a lot went into it and kind of kind of take us through that. You know, I I'd say it took me at least at least three, four years, you know, to write that. One of the things that's a little different from my writing career now is that I'm not working full-time jobs. 
as I did when I was um, writing, you know, I'm doing crazy. And because I'd go to work at Trader Joe's, I'd get up at six in the morning. Well, I'd get up at five, get to work at six, come home at two. And then, you know, by three, I'm back at it. And I would just write all day, all night, um, you know, kind of thing. I think because too, in some ways, um, I'm doing crazy is what I like to call collective unconscious. And because I have so many people ask me, well, is that your story? And I kind of like, you know, I think it's all our story because so many women have told me, I thought you were writing about me, you know? So there, right. there's this collective experience that so many of us are having that sometimes if you don't see it expressed, you might think you're the only one thinking like that. So I was trying to, in Undoing Crazy, put incidents, um, incidences and experiences that people would be able to see themselves. Um, I love what, how, I mean, even though, like you said, it was printed, you know, um, I um, published it with Oaktown Press. It was back in 2013. And that to me is a long time. So I'm really anxious to get this other book out. But what I, I noticed, it, it has kind of like this peak and valley. Um, you know, people can buy it off of Amazon. They could buy it at uh, Marcus Bookstores, which is located in Oakland. And, and I'd really say if you can get to Marcus, get there first, because I like to support independent bookstores. Sure. Um, and, you know, if you go into Walmart, Target, and you ask them to order it, they will order it. So it is, you know, it is something that's widely available. But it seems to have um, its peaks and valleys. You know, I'll look up and I'm like, wow. How come I got all those sales? And it's usually because a book club has gotten onto it. Sure, sure. And once a book club gets onto it, then for a while there's this sales in there, then they drop a little bit and then they come up again. And so it's been really interesting watching how this book has been found. Then the then the peaks uh get getting uh, keep getting higher. We're talking to Colette Winlock about her third career as a novelist, an accomplished writer. Gone from athlete to writer. Not many people do that. Uh, Colette, your main character, Carla Sinclair, was she the first uh, character that you created for this book? I You have so many others, but you kind of built the book around her and her experiences. Yeah, yeah. Carla started out. I started out writing Carla, and I guess she got a little lonely because then one, one, and I swear to God, this happened. I was outside my backyard and the name Dana came to me. And so, <laughs> so Dana came and then I began to start writing, you know, as you know, in the book, she's one of, um, you know, Carla's best friends, even though she's got a long way to go on what it means to be a friend. And so I begin to start having Carla and Dana you know, kind of play off of them. And, but then I was thinking too, okay, this is in Oakland. And, you know, in the book, I've had people tell me, well, Oakland shows up almost like a character because I um, tried to describe so much of the wonderful parts of Oakland and, and the histories. And, and, you know, Oakland is the, um, is where the Black Panthers started. And so I, I begin to think, well, what would happen? Because if a family, you know, didn't necessarily participate in what was happening with the Black Panthers, because that was not unusual. Um, just like in uh, many movements, not everybody is actively participating, but they're aware of it, they're, they're getting impacted. And so I thought, well, what if this family, you know, had, 
you know, some concerns and, and, you know, just a little bit of a spoiler, you know, um, the mother had come from the deep South and was fearful, was fearful for her sons, uh, her sons being harmed by the police and not really understanding, you know, what it meant to, to be an activist. And so it was through her own eyes that the family, you know, was not participating. And then I wondered, well, Carla, why are you so depressed? It just can't be, you know, because you're tired of your job. Um, and so that next came up to me to have a little bit more of a deeper, you know, dive into what was happening for Carla, that she was on this path that the depression, you know, almost took her life. Um, and That's right. And at one point in the book, she contemplates taking her own life, which I found extraordinary. Uh, I, I had this woman that you've written about. It, initially, she was very strong, but because of circumstances, loneliness, depression set in, you've got the oppression angle, and all of a sudden the veneer is torn off this lady. And it, it was a fascinating read, and uh, I'm sure you have many readers. The book has been out, I think, now about seven years, but you're working on a sequel. I know in our time left, I want to talk about that without giving away the store. Tell us what you're working on now. Well, you know, I've been asked to do a sequel, um, and what I'm working on right now is actually not the sequel to Undoing Crazy, but I'm not going to rule out that Carla is not going to come back because I think there's a way in which I would really like to, because, you know, I love writing these stories. And so I would really like to, to write about Carla's. Well, I want to see Carla come back at some point. Okay. Well, I tell you, she'll be back. But I'm working on this story right now. Sure. Um, working title is Now Isabel. And, um, you know, this story goes back to the 1930s. And I don't know how I ended up back there, but it goes back to the 1930s. And so Carla's father, Roy, um, he basically was bullied as a child. You know, so he has a whole lot going on for himself. And so his way to fight back was to get revenge by always being the big man on top. Okay, so, but the thing that happens is he has a daughter that's imperfect. And so in having this imperfect daughter, of course, you know, it just throws his whole world in a, in a crazy or, you know, in a way that he's got to figure out, well, what do I do? I mean, his daughter is on the spectrum. And so back in the 1930s, they didn't call it, you know, autism. They didn't call it Asperger's. You know, they didn't call it those things. They just knew that they had a special child. And so right. it shows this journey that this family goes on, on in terms of raising, you know, this special child, what happens to her as she gets to be an adult. And it just. See, that that's a fascinating premise. Most people have this preconceived notion about, again, about what mental health and behavioral health is. They know that there was a lot of stigmas in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but you go back a generation further and it's even worse. You talk about something that's not even talked about, but to the families that actually experience it, you're putting people right back. You're, you're giving them a front row seat to the way it was in the 1930s. I'm looking forward to that book, Colette. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's moving along good. I'm excited. That is uh, that is terrific. And let me just uh, ask you a couple of uh, quick questions. Uh, what do you do for, for for fun? What's your what are your hobbies? Well, 
I don't know if you know, but you know, I did retire. Ah, uh, you're in, you're in Act Four. How can you retire? <laughs> but I, I I retired from I mean from being an executive director at a nonprofit, the Health sure. and Human Resource Education Center. And, you know, I was looking for something different. And I had some friends who moved up to Mount Shasta that we're actually in the city of Weed, which has a whole nother history that's fascinating. <laughs> sure. So, you know, my, my days look like I get up early because I've always been an early riser. I swim every day. Uh, there's a fantastic indoor pool here. So I do my swimming. Um, I still have some mentoring that I do with some, um, some women who, who are down in, um, you know, the Bay Area. And I kind of feel like my job now is to pass on what I know. You know, I, I try to connect them to resources. I share money if I'm able to, but just so that they themselves can begin to, to establish that. Um, I have more time to spend with my family. I've probably seen Steve more than I have in a long time. Um, I go to Sacramento quite a bit, um, you know, hang out with my family. And I'll tell you, my days feel full. They really do. It's amazing what retirement does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you, uh, if you had a pet peeve, what would it be? Whoa, a pet peeve. Oh, you know, you you ask such big questions of me. Um, <laughs> That's all right. It just you know kind of in which category, <laughs> you know. Oh. Right now, I'd say my pet peeve is I don't like the way our we're we're conducting our politics. Um, I think that I don't like this snarkiness and how you know our elected leaders are communicating with each other. Um, Seems to be a lot of rancor, doesn't there? Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, you can talk better. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of talk kinder, talk with more clarity, stop this performance, you know, po political acts. Um, so I think that for right now, that's a, a big pet peeve because I think until we can begin to start bringing, bringing it down to some civility in terms of recognizing people's humanity, um, that it's going to be tough. Uh, absolutely, we could we could probably spend an entire another show on that. Believe me, but but you're right. Uh, words have meaning, and also ratcheting down the rhetoric, I think, would would serve uh, uh, humanity greatly. Uh, one other question: I always envision writers uh, seeking out uh, remote places to do their work. You're up in Siskiyou County. Uh, was that the reason that you moved up there to kind of get away from it and clear your head? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I get my tea, and I look at Mount Shasta. Um, but I, I have a commitment to this writing career, and I knew that I was going to have to kind of put myself where I could sequester. You know, um, writing is a lot going to a lot like going to practice. You know, you go to practice every day on the weekends, you know, you still, you still, you might not go to the track meet, but you, um, you know, you still train. And so, you know, writing now, I feel like I have this rhythm that's allowing me to to do it on a regular basis. And, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's fun. Are you one of those novelists and writers that if, if a thought comes to you at say two o'clock in the morning, you've got a notepad next on your nightstand or maybe an iPad that, oh my gosh, I, mean, I got to write that down because if I fall asleep, I'm going to forget it. 
Are you? I am that, I am that kind of writer. Yeah. And, um, you know, Alice Walker says, um, always create the possibility of writing. And so I've got, you know, I've got little notes here I have on my freezer, you know, I mean, my refrigerator where I can write, jot down things in my bedroom. I got a little desk and that lets me, because sometimes it does happen for whatever reason, three, four in the morning, something just pops in my head and I just, you know, make sure I go and I write it down. If there's anything that I learned that people pass on to me about writing is write it down writers write exactly we've talked about mentors in your first two careers do you have a mentor in your writing career hmm. you know i'm looking for one i'm looking okay. for one that i could work on a work with on more regular basis i have people that are definitely you know champions for me um i have people who are willing to read some of my um you know some of the the chapters or scenes that i put out um, but as far as like a one-on-one -on -one mentor, like a coach, like a David Andriotti or Coach Santos, not at this moment, but I'm definitely open to it. Or maybe it could be another author whose works that you admire, somebody who's uh, encouraged you in their writing. Yeah, I wish Tony wasn't here, was still here. Um, <laughs> but no, I know what you're saying. And, sure. Um, yeah, that's something that that I'm hoping and, and open to, you know, someone or some bodies coming into my life in that way. Have you ever given a thought to writing a screenplay, perhaps uh, after undoing crazy? You know, I have. I have. Um, I've been told a couple of times that, you know, undoing crazy has got some pretty cin cinematic themes. Sure, it does. And I think especially today, uh, today's audiences, I think, would really warm to a, a story like this. Uh, uh, m most definitely. The book is Undoing Crazy. And if you buy it, we're not going to tell you not to buy it on Amazon, but go to Oakland to Marcus Books and buy it there the next time you happen to be in the Bay Area. Uh, of course, Oakland's always one of my favorite cities. I'm a longtime Raider fan, even though they've jilted me twice. I, I always, uh, always love going there as well. Colette, this has been wonderful and uh, hard to believe our hour is nearly up. Uh, one other question for you, maybe a parting uh, peril of wisdom from Colette Winlock. You know, um, peril of wisdom, I feel like, um, you know, life can and is something that can be just amazing. Um, but I do believe you've got to have a curiosity, you know, so have, so be curious about life, you know, be curious about how something happened, be curious how you feel about something, you know, um, and I think that the more that you can look like, like they say, beyond your nose, you right. know, you'd be surprised at what, what kinds of um, experiences, you know, and reflections that come up. Well, I know a lot of young people will be watching this and looking at you as somebody who's been there and not only done that, but done that with uh, exceptional skill. Colette Winlock has been our guest. This has been an absolute pleasure. Colette, thank you for coming on to the Rancho Cordova uh, podcast with me today. 
Thank you, Mike. And I really appreciate, I appreciate how you, you know, carried out this interview. And um, now I'm going to have to ask you some questions offline. Oh, uh, we will do that. Well, folks, that'll be a wrap for this week. Until next time, this is Mike Mirando. Thank you.